I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I'm pretty excited to have someone who I've known for quite a few years now. We have uh, Will Sutherland with us. Uh, Will has a a really interesting background. Uh, He's the vice president at at Kilmer and has been on a special project, which we're going to delve into a little bit because I find that incredibly fascinating, and I've only heard about it peripherally with Coca-Cola. Prior to that was uh, at Kensington Capital and then RBC Capital Markets. So to say that uh, Will has a ton of operational and transactional experience would be an understatement, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to talking to you, Will. So thank you so much for joining me. Well, happy to. I really appreciate you know the relationship we've had the last couple of years, and, and this has been a great invite. I've, I've never done one of these before, so uh, looking to explore and, and get deep. Absolutely. So so, Will, for those that don't know you, and we can take your role right now is so interesting. I usually start at the beginning and ask you about your childhood. I will ask you, so you're not going to get away from me on that one. But just to give people some context around what you do, maybe you can uh, speak about uh, your current role, what you do, and uh, and some of the exciting projects you're working on. Sure. Honestly, it's a little bit of everything. My role officially is business development, and, and that means everything from hunting deals and rainmaking to creating you know, networks and partners that we may or, or may not over time, you know, work with on, on some future opportunity. It's doing when the time makes sense, detailed due diligence. I do have an operating background. I'm an engineer and spent years at Toyota kind of figuring things out and breaking companies and fixing companies. And, and sometimes that's applicable to, you know, what you're looking at. When it makes sense, you know, getting involved and dealing with everything throughout due diligence and legals and dealing with banks and, Sometimes sitting on the board or being part of that, you know, operating transition. And, and I'm sure being a psychologist to many of the uh, people you work with as well. Yeah, I had done that before. This is years ago. I turned a company around. Uh, I was basically the COO of a small manufacturing company out in, in the prairies. And it was a turnaround. And, and it had been a group that just had been under fire from, a you know, an old management team that just, you know, had been very authoritative and, and you know, managed by, by stick. That doesn't work, especially in those kind of communities. And it's you know, you're being a babysitter, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but the emotional, the soft skill side of this, quite frankly, is is virtually most of the issue at hand. The transactional stuff is is I don't want to say table stakes, but you know it's 25 percent of the issue. No, I agree. I, I you know I I go so far as to say table stakes. I mean you need you need the technical knowledge. So table stakes may be downplaying how difficult that technical knowledge is to acquire and the experience is to acquire. But I think what separates someone that's good from great is the non-technical knowledge, the, the understanding of, of EQ and how to deal with people. And we were just talking about this before we, we went live. And I was saying how what I'm obsessed with learning about in these podcasts is not the business side of things. That's, that's actually quite boring to me after as many years as I've been doing this for. It's the personal side and how you got to where you got to and what you've learned along the way. So, so, so on, on that note, how did you get to this point? So, so t- tell me about what your childhood looked like. You know, that's always an interesting starting point for me because I don't know what your childhood looked like. So, you know, take us in an interesting direction, hopefully. It's a different one. I mean, I, it's funny. I, I always kind of find I've been the odd kind of person out, uh, especially when it comes to the financial world. And let me kind of explain why. So I, I grew up, you know, very middle class, east side of Toronto and Ajax. And my, my father's side, we're, we're a long line of engineers. 
So my grandfather, mechanical engineer, my father, an engineer, mechanical, myself, my sister, who's 14 years younger than I am, also now a mechanical engineer. So you can just imagine how, to some people, boring those you know Sunday dinner conversations were going to be. It's all about facts, and it's all about solving problems, and that's one view of the world. I was very lucky growing up, got to uh, you know enjoy some fruits of, of sports. I did uh, competitive swimming for a number of years, did quite well. I was looking at the U.S., very long story short, I ended up going down to Princeton University for mechanical and aerospace engineering and, and very theoretical. A lot of math, which I was good at, but not A plus student at. And I graduated in 2000 when the world blew up, you know, the dot com bubble. Great time. Great time. You know, you're, you're coming out, everyone's saying, oh, wow, you're, you know, you're smart. I was very average at university, to be quite blunt. I mean, you were average at Princeton, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, but, you know, there, there, there certainly is a gradient within that graduating class. I had a job in New York City to be, you know, some high-flying consultant. My stock options were worth a lot. And, uh, well, I was just thinking about it. Uh, it's probably the 20th anniversary just about two months ago. I was let go before I even started because, you know, classic, you know, dot-com blow up. But ended up moving back with my parents and moved from Ajax to Waterloo. As I mentioned, my grandfather uh, was a mechanical engineer, ran a company, did a lot of turnarounds and business optimizations for different companies. Ended up working with him. And he had clients like Toyota, like Bombardier, Labatt's. And I knew nothing bluntly coming out of university. I knew how to design everything uh, or, or, sorry, uh, like use math, but I didn't know how an engine worked. So I, I read all sorts of magazines. I had friends in Waterloo at the time that had fun cars that, you know, I was too scared to work on my own. But we would build, you know, Toyota Supras and old Corvettes and stuff. But you figure out, like, how do you actually make horsepower? How do you do something in trial and error? And that was something that I missed. Always knew I wanted to know how to build value on that shop floor, so to speak, before I went back to do an MBA. And that was certainly following in the footsteps of my father. Uh, he's pretty much my hero. He's, he's gone through engineering, did quite well. He did a lot of project finance in Toronto for years. And he was involved in big projects, you know, forestry and mining and building things. And that was certainly love of mine. So did the Toyota thing. I became really good at fixing broken projects or problems. Did that for a couple of years, went back and, you know, a couple of years in investment banking. I was a horrible junior banker, but, you know, got the technical side down. I've now been doing private investing, merchant banking, if you will, for the last 12, 13 years. So for me, it's, it's really a combination of that love of operating know-how, building Lego with my kids, seeing something standing back and seeing some kind of accomplishment and the technical side of deal making and the soft side and, and really trying to find out what a good solution to that problem is, which is very similar to engineering. You know, it's so interesting. I've never gone down this path on the engineering side, but I want to, as you know, and we know each other through my COO, Sebastian, who went to Princeton. I'm not sure if it was with you or- uh, A couple of years after, we didn't know each other at the time. Yeah, and it's interesting. You just mentioned Lego and you don't know this, but I, when people ask me to describe myself, the easiest way I describe myself is I say I'm the adult version of a kid who likes playing Lego and it's just different puzzle pieces. So I want to I want to double down a little bit and, and ask you to to delve a little bit deeper into what skill set comes from that engineering mindset that really works well in what we do in deal making because why I ask that is there's not a lot of engineers in deal making and my thought process has always been because in engineering there is a right and a wrong right like it's it, it, it's very rigid in, in the way you know, math works, right? It's either the right answer or the wrong answer. It's, it's extremely objective, where deal-making has incredible amounts of subjectivity. So 
what is it you took from engineering that really makes you good at what you do? And what is it you have to kind of adapt to and get out of that engineering you know, minded framework? Great question. Engineering really is about systematic problem solving, be it physics, be it biology, chemistry. The, the discipline doesn't matter, but solving something and breaking it down to call it, you know, root cause and, and making an assumption and moving the scientific forward. method. Yeah. And it's all based on risk. We can talk about that in the financial world, which is deal making, but you know, engineering is the same way. It's taking a calculated risk and you know, taking public safety and things like that into consideration. So for me, it's it's that ability to look at a problem perhaps a little bit differently. Certainly, if it is a deal that has a lot more of an industrial or you know, super high tech, you know, software, not my thing, but certain types of businesses and processes mean a lot. I spent four years, five years uh, in and around Toyota. Toyota is very well known for the Toyota way lean manufacturing, a lot of principles that I was very lucky to be able to work beside some of the top people in the world with that. We built a, a plant in Cambridge at uh, TMMC for Lexus in 2003. So working with people to build a plant that would build a car, and that's very similar to, to a deal if you think about it. You have experts, you have people on that shop floor that will know that so much better than you. You understand process, you understand working with partners. You are a, a lateral thinker versus just you know technical expertise, and and I believe in a in a society we we train people to be very very good technically, and then at some point if they rise to the top, they're all of a sudden supposed to manage people, manage risk, understand financial statements. Good luck finding someone that can do that. It does happen rarely, and we end up with either managers or kind of owners, but very rarely do those kind of fit. So for me, I still use Toyota principles constantly, be it you know in the office or certainly we talked about Coca-Cola due diligence, but it's efficiency. It's looking at really what does that customer value or in the eyes of a dealmaker, what, what does that shareholder really value at the end of the day? You know, friction costs or where do things go wrong or where are certain decisions made wrong and then things just can go poorly. So that certainly is the engineering side. But as a young person working with teams, working with contractors, you, you realize the soft skills stuff is again, 80 plus percent of the issue. Great, yeah, and you and you really need to understand negotiation and people's desires and what people drives them. And that's, that's partly just listening. That's partly, I think, being an entrepreneur. And I think it's very hard to teach that innate sense of curiosity and creativity. I'd love to learn, I read every day about Topics I find of interest, cars is a big one. So Toyota made a lot of sense, but it's it's digging deep and, and asking why and asking why again and again and again to get to that base level that that doesn't make sense. And that's where I think you know real opportunity in deal making comes from. And that's a technical side of it, sure, but the the emotional and the people side of that is hard. And that's not a typical engineering thing that you do. So it takes just practice. So, so Will, there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are beginning their careers and want to be a deal maker. And, and some of them come from unique backgrounds. I have a degree in genetics. And that's why when you talk about the scientific method, it's, I think it's one of the reasons that being successful in the financial world is because I don't come from a finance background and I view the world differently, not too dissimilar to what you just described. One of the things as I look at your background is you made some good and interesting career choices. You know, you said you were a bad investment banker. You said you were a decent student. I don't know if I agree with any of that. You know, like who knows how modest you are being, but maybe talk to me specifically about what goes on in your head when you're making a career move. And, and why I'm asking you this is what, what should other people be doing and thinking about as they are viewing where they want to be and where they're at and what should they be doing, you know, to get there? 
Yeah, great question. Again, if we're talking deal making, and I'll I'll kind of keep this to the the private equity direct kind of model because it's a little bit different, you know, depending where you go. In Canada, we have a lot of ex-investment bankers that are really, really good at transactional stuff. They've been doing it for years. They can transact better than anyone. And and I certainly, you know, I'm not at that level anymore when it gets into a lot of the legalities and, and technical stuff. But you know, you really need to have a different view. There's nothing wrong with having you know that business only mindset. But again, if, if you can read a spreadsheet, that doesn't mean you know a business. You really need to have been in businesses, get your hands dirty, not just at a strategic level, but then go and work beside the person, you know, on that shop floor, you know, putting that nut on that bolt, or you know, people going out and creating the value within the business. And that bluntly is not at the top, it's that middle layer and down. So my advice is, you know, I'm biased. I took engineering first, business second, but you know, start with something that you love that gives you something to create value, be it in any kind of discipline, be it you know, liberal arts or sciences. I don't think today matters. Do that for a couple of years. And your first couple of years, really get involved in everything. Say yes more than you say no, uh, which that definitely changes, you know, as you get older in your career. But you're gonna find out more about what not to do in your first five years of, of your working life than than what actually works. Every company has issues. And, and if your antenna is up and you question that status quo, I think that starts building the foundations of now going back, getting properly trained and you know the financial technical side. And again, there's no real answer. You know, investment banking is a great way to get a lot of exposure, a lot of deal experience. You work your ass off, make some great money. That's one way. Running a business, being entrepreneurial, you know, be it your primary or your secondary job, try different things, try to always solve problems and, and create value. And that's easy to say, hard to pinpoint, but get involved with networking groups, get involved with companies that are doing turnaround. For my networking today, I, I network from very unorthodox potential deal sources. Yes, we all deal with banks and lawyers and accountants, and they're great. But how many people talk to other engineers that are going into company and improving bottom lines by 10, 15%? There's a huge opportunity. The company's growing or the company now has liberated cash or the company doesn't have the finances to do that. That's a potential opportunity. Or looking at it from a succession planning perspective or a tax planning perspective or operators that you know are really smart in their field. They're not deal guys, but they see the way that the waves of the world are moving and they can find that change wave where you can go in and, and pinpoint something that no one else is going to see. You're not going to see it on a comp table. You're not going to see it by one of the big banks pushing it around because it doesn't exist yet. It's amazing to me how many people think that they're going to get to where they want to get to by being the best version of what they see around them. And what I tell people all the time is the ones who really stick out, to your point, are the ones that are completely thinking out of the box and are trying to bring a completely different viewpoint. To the table because being the best version of everything around you, you're just a little bit better than everyone else. To be a lot better, you can't think like everyone else. I agree. Again, I, I've been blessed, you know, with with some of the experiences I've had. But you know, I drive my accounting team nuts. You know, they look at me like I'm crazy. I, I am the cowboy in my office. That's my role to to try and and do non-vanilla deals. Vanilla deals are very hard, especially today with COVID, with the world going sideways. Who the heck knows what that looks like for the next couple of years? multiples at all-time highs. You know, you buy something on the equity side, you buy something at 10 times after tax, that's what, 13, 14 years to pay yourself back if there's no growth. And we're in a very low growth overall economy. So you're having to pick the winners. That's really hard. So you have to see something different. And you can't teach that. It's just trial and error, but it's within a core set of values that for me, it's the Toyota way. For me, it's it's networking and relying on, on external experts 
when we were doing Coca-Cola, I was 40 at the time. I'm not coming in as the expert in bottling. It's, it's pointing to the direction of people that have been doing this for 40 years and really unlocking what they say. Your teams know what's wrong. It's just, do you have the system to be able to push those improvements through in a nice enough way to keep people engaged when you know the world is burning around them? And that's, that's not easy and you can't teach that. So you said you can't teach that twice. Now, you know, the premise of my, my, my podcast is this nature versus nurture discussion. I would agree when you say you can't teach that, you, you, I think you've, you've gotten a sense of what my version of the nature versus, uh, you know, nature versus nurture debate is. Where do you lie in that debate? Are you going to have to backtrack the, you no, can't I, I mean, there, it depends. I mean, if you, if you want to think of a deal maker, let me take half a step back. The way that the investing dealmaker world is set up is we're, we tend to be very product focused. I work for a bank. I am a derivatives trader or I, I do M&A or I do IPOs or corporate finance and, and they do a great job, but sometimes they can be a little limited. We didn't have that merchant banking experience and wealth of opportunity in the 70s, 80s and 90s that other places in the world did. We didn't have you know, the same kind of trading companies in this country as Europe did you know, three, 400 years ago, where it really was bartering at, at, at the most basic form. So you know, to be a great deal maker, I think you need to have, and this stuff can be taught, you really need to understand, you know, if you're an equity guy, you need to understand equity, but you need to understand you know, public markets and private markets, you need to understand debt. I mean, how many equity guys really understand debt? Very few, and, and vice versa, debt really doesn't understand equity. Then you have to understand the market and what's, what's hot or what's liquid today is not what's liquid six months from now, who the players are and who's got a balance sheet that's open or not for what given sector. That stuff you can teach, I think. It's, it's experiential. It's going out and, and tapping people and having a lot of open conversations. And you have to keep that up because, again, it, it just changes all the time. The one thing I've challenged myself to answer this question, I think it really is nature, is the entrepreneurship side of it. You can take all of these bits and, and say, great, I, I really understand how to put together a fantastic equity or debt term sheet. Great. I know I can bring in a team to take a company from here to here. But how do you get over that risk aversion? How do you get over that gut feeling saying, oh, my God, this could be the wrong step? The difference between taking or, or leveraging the entire company and risking it all, and, and maybe that's your thing, depending who or where your money comes from, that may or not be okay. But how do you take that gut check and say, you know what, we're going to do this. We're going to go hands in. We're going to get dirty and come you know, good or bad. We're going to we're going to own this. In the private equity world, you can't trade out of it in five minutes. You own it for probably two to three years. And on day one, the world blows up. You own this thing. And you really, especially in a family office environment, the team has to come together and figure that out. And that is hard because plans sometimes go out the window very quickly, short term. You have to go with your gut. You don't have all the data in the world. You're up against potentially a bank or someone else, you know, trying to create additional covenants and additional pressures on you. You have to figure it out. And that takes a lot of determination and leadership. Again, leadership, different types of leaders, but, you know, that warrior mentality, arguably, I, I think it's kind of innate. You learn that from a very early age. Or do you learn it from a very early age or are you just born that way? Sorry, that's what I meant. Like, I think you're, you're born that way. You become that at an early age from whatever you know, childhood uh, influences you have. But, you know, there's, there's the administrative types and the political types as well. You know, those are my three versions of leadership. But that, that gets set. I, oh, I think, sorry, you know, so to, to tell, tell me the three versions that you, that you have. Warrior, politician, and administrator. And I will admit, I'm stealing that from uh, Doug Peel, one of our senior mentors at, at uh, Kilmer. 
Everything is recycled. <laughs> Everything is recycled. There's no unique thought anymore. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I truly believe it. You need different types. You can't have one type all the time. I think you're definitely one major one, second one, perhaps a little bit, third one, forget it. But that's that's really built in you in those first couple of years. And it's funny, I even see it in my kids. I didn't teach them certain things, but naturally certain tendencies are coming out. And I have two, so one is very different than the other. I didn't teach that. That just naturally comes out from their own experiences. So I think half of it ish you can you can teach, you know, nurture. The other half is is nature. It's it's kind of born in it. That's why you have a team. For sure. So I, I want to take you back. You, you said something earlier in the conversation. I took note of it because it's really interesting. It's something that I've been working on a lot in my personal progression as a leader is this idea of as you're starting out, say yes far more than you say no. And then you you specifically said it changes. I agree with you. My biggest issue in my that I've had is that I say yes to way too many things. And I've had to learn because I, I don't know what it is. I feel really uncomfortable saying no. I don't like saying no to people. And I, I commit myself to things that I really shouldn't be doing just because I can. I, I can technically do this. Yes, it's going to take away time for my kids, it's like, but I can do it. And what I've learned is I just, it's not fair to other parts of my life. It's not fair to me personally. It makes me you know, not be able to focus on the things I need to focus on. It's not fair to my team. So I've had to learn how to say no, which has been very challenging. So maybe talk to me about, you know, you specifically said it changes because I agree with you and how you think that changes. I think you have to start out, you know, you come out of school, if that was your path and you're full of all this technical knowledge, but in most cases, very little practical. And you need to get as much practical experience as you can, not just in one thing. And and someone asked me a question a long time ago, Will, you love cars, you're an engineer. Why didn't you go and work for, you know, one of the big OEMs? Because I don't want to be the guy, you know, designing the little champer on this for the next 15 years. Like, personally, not very satisfying. So when you're going out there early, say yes, get every single experience you can, be it, you know, it's right in your field or not. But as you you mature, and it's different for everyone, you know, but call it late 20s, early 30s, start saying no a little bit. You know, you're an investment banker, you're working 80 to 100 hours a week. That's your job. And you know that going in. And we all know that a lot of investment bankers uh, burn out. It's a very tough business. Some make it and make it very well. But, you know, we, we all know that pipeline. But, you know, as you grow up, you need to realize you can't be any everything to everyone. And you have to stay to your core values and your mission. So, you know, our mission at Kilmer, at least in the private equity world, is ownership of great companies, cash on cash returns, multi-generational wealth. Now, that's very high level. It can mean a lot of different things lower than that, but you have to really get to the point of solving problems and you can't make a solution to every problem. That's been a hard one for me to figure out over the years. You can't fix everything, even though your engineer brain kind of does work that way. You have to say no when that risk return just doesn't make sense. And that takes, in my opinion, years to develop through good and bad experiences. And to your point, you have, you have different priorities in your life. My favorite word, honestly, is balance be it family, be it work, we could spend, we're in a business where you can spend, you know, 10 years working on something and you get nothing, or you can work a week on something and you get something massive, right? So it's really knowing when, where to, to fish or cut bait. It's, it's always these risk adjusted inputs of effort and time and knowing when to say no. I think that's, that's really important versus saying yes. We say no a lot. I mean, we look at 500-ish deals a year. We say no to virtually all of them. But it's that really unique opportunity that that has those intrinsic values that we seek that there, that's where I personally think you should dig in a bit and, and make something opportunistic and make something work. You know what's interesting about Kilmer and, and the question I have for you is 
Traditional private equity firms, as, as those who are listening probably know, have a defined time frame. You know, what's unique about the world you live in, and you've just mentioned it, is this idea of multi-generational. So my question specifically is, what have you learned being around individuals that have this long-term mindset that is unique to that long-term mindset? I've always said, and this is controversial, I think ultimately China is going to be the biggest powerhouse in the world. And it's simply because they don't have to think about the world through four-year terms. And I think that that makes a massive, massive difference if you can plan for the future as opposed to plan for four-year increments. So what have you seen? Like, because I've never lived in that world where, you know, you're working for a, you know, a very large family, a prominent family, and they think probably far longer term. They do. I mean, when we're looking at a deal, we typically don't look primarily at exit opportunities. We bought Coca-Cola for us unless something drastically goes wrong, and that's certainly not our plan, we'll hold that forever. Uh, you can't obviously do that in, in a PE fund, and they have their own view, and, and they do a great job. But it's they go in, they have a certain shorter-term mandate, you know, three to five years if things go well, you know, leverage up, pay it off, do well, or growth, or they have one or two key strategic items that they want to implement over those three to five years. More than that, it's really, really tough. Family offices, yes, it's it's the capital of that family. It's indefinite. It could be a 10 or 30. I mean, we've been in MLSC for 30-ish years now. I mean, that's extremely long. But it also comes down to, you know, the nature of those specific families. And, and you know, they have differing views at times. And, and sometimes things, you know, move one way or another. And that that's fine. And I've heard that from many family offices. But it's keeping on top of that, you know, concierge-like view of, being shepherds of that family's view of the world and making investments for them that you know meet their needs. And, and we're lucky to the point that we can look multi-generationally. We're not looking to generate cash, big jumps in cash step functions every few years. Yes, we do like cash on cash, but you know, it allows us to do different things. It allows us to you know, 20% IRR rate doesn't mean we have to do that. We're happy not having to recycle capital and making something less than that as long as, again, for our personal goals, a little bit of cash out every year, long-term growth, opportunistically, we can add to it. But businesses that we fundamentally understand and, and you know, the family can hand off to, you know, generation four and five. So, but that that's just our specific mandate. You have an interesting background in that you have transactional experience and you have real operating experience You're in the trenches. What are some of the, and this is, this is a hard question to answer because there's probably a million examples you can give, but what are some of the patterns that you've seen amongst operators and companies that have led to success versus those patterns that you see, you're like, oh, I've seen this before, this is gonna fail. Are there some things that stick out in your mind where, you're, where you see them, you're highly encouraged, and you know, when you see them, you, conversely, you're, 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 you're put off? Yeah, we could spend a volume of podcasts on that. It really depends. I mean, I would, first of all, and this is my engineer brain ticking over, there's no perfect company, we know that. Companies of a certain size, you know, you have friction costs, you get away from the customer, you do things because you think that's the way the world should work. Toolboxes over time changes, you know, the, the market changes and, and bigger companies tend to get into that, hey, we've been successful and, and we're fine. We know that's not true. And there's dozens of examples that you know, we've all read or, or, or case studies that we've done in school. What I would say is most companies, there's a disconnect between true ownership and that first level of non-ownership management, we all know that, and again, I'm not trying to throw any particular group into, into you know, stereotype or silo, but 
there's there's differences uh, in interest and alignment there. Yes, they may be owners or, or get carried interest, but more often than not, there, there tends to be some friction there and, and misunderstanding. And, and many managers, not all, many managers have never had the chance to be at a PE firm or a family office where they say no to you know 500-ish companies opportunities a year. They're working in a business that for the most part, you know, they're in for a couple of years or they're in for 10, 20, 30 years and, and rightfully so proud of doing that, but they don't have the same types of opportunities to say no. So there's a, a different view. One thing that we see in our world a lot is different companies in different sectors. And we kind of be it, you know, benchmarking or just processes and, and things like that, like what gold standards are. I think there's a lot of gold standards you can apply to almost any business and, and you know, pick any business in any industry. You can come in and, and learn quickly and this is how they do it. But have you ever thought about this, this, or this? And that usually is a bit disconnected. Every business is different. And what about the individuals? Like what about the leaders? Are there leadership qualities that you, you know, when you're buying a business and you're relying on a management team, I'm sure there's situations where like, I love this business, but I just can't trust or this individual. What are the things that stick out? You know, what are those reasons that you get hesitation? I learned this at Toyota, but there's really two types of companies. There's marketing companies and there's operating companies. And there's maybe a handful that are both. Most companies out there, 95 plus percent, they're marketing. They always talk about, hey, we're going to increase sales. We're going to increase our price. We're going to do this. We're going to launch these 10,000 new products, blah, blah, blah. And great. That's one thing. But if you're always having to go and hit that next home run, or you're always having to go and scrape the market, that's hard. You know, Tony Fell, one of the uh, senior chairmen at, at RBC when I was there years ago, said, you cannot control your revenue. And frankly, COVID has proven exactly that. You can't control that. You can't control customer happiness. You can influence it. But at the end of the day, you know, the world can turn away from you. And if you're focused just on top line, you're done. You know, you see that in the automotive industry 13 years ago when that industry got cut in half, half of the suppliers out there died because they couldn't ratchet down quickly enough. So for me, I look at really focused operators. I look at people that understand process and really understand the business and don't, you know, do the golden palace corporate thing and stay there. I want to see people that are actually out in the field that are comfortable putting on their work boots and, and walking around and talking shop with the called the lowest people in the business, the, the people doing the work from a title standpoint, they're not you know the highest in the business, but they're the ones actually adding the value. You know, I want to see teams that work well, that are broad. I don't want to see people that all have, they're all engineers. I mean, engineers can be smart, but you know, sometimes they lack other types of characteristics at certain sizes. You want to see that you have a great aspect of legal and aspect, uh, obviously the numbers and, and, and everything else. Governance is huge. It's shocking today in, in the deals we see, at least in Canada, you know, how many call it 100 million plus revenue companies don't really have an advisory board or anything independent. They, there potentially could be a lot of negative you know, feedback and companies can kind of go like this over time. You want to have that outside grounding. So it's not any one thing. I think it's a combination thereof and every business is different. But humble leaders, leaders that realize that they have made mistakes or things aren't as good, speaks to me. There's no way that you can get everything right. There's no way that you are only ever going to be successful. My first question when doing diligence is often, tell me what you don't like or tell me what your failures have been. It puts people off because that's not typically how we sell, at least in the private equity world. But it truly brings people back to reality of, you know, this is real. You had to get your hands dirty. When was this? What did you do? I mean, I personally don't trust individuals that haven't been through struggle of some kind. I think struggle is just so important because, you know, you learn more from that than just, you know, everything going the right way. Exactly. Exactly. We've been very fortunate on one hand uh, until recently, you know, we've had a 14 year 
expansionary, uh, 13, 14 year expansionary uh, market. And that's unprecedented. You know, if you think about a typical PE hold or family office hold in the 10, 20, 30 years, you're going to go through three or four economic cycles that longer hold. Maybe one economic cycle, depending on how you time it for, you know, a five to 10 year hold. That's hard. You're at some point going to have to, as an owner, think like an operator. That's my philosophy, at least. We have a lot of, of transaction groups and, and great, but understanding transactions isn't going to help you when you know your revenues are down 20%. You realize your, your managers don't really know what they're doing. And now what? Right? You, you can't buy your way out of it. You can't, uh, with all due respect, you can't go you know, hire a professional firm to, to fully help you out of that. They can do aspects of it. But it's that worldview, that that lateral view of the different, not just products, but different options to solve that problem and, and sitting back and really thinking like that. And we've got some great examples here in Canada of people I respect very well. And I just think we need to think more like this because that's how we're going to create value going forward. Again, it's not buying low, selling high. It's not over leveraging. I don't think you can today. Interest rates you know, going through the bottom, you know, real returns go along with it. So how are you going to do something different? And I think it's it's internal focus, it's process, it's getting, you know, really efficient and, and smart, plus the growth side of it. Great. I mean, it's not just about financial engineering. That's no, sure. God, no. Well, well, that's great. I mean, uh, you know, thank you so much for joining us. For those that want to follow along and see what you're up to, and, and also uh, those that think that uh, Kilmer may be a great partner for them, what's the best way that they can uh, keep track of you and reach out? Well, certainly my LinkedIn profile. Um, I am the window person for a lot of opportunities and partnerships. So uh, either email or, or a lot of people out there meet me, connect you uh, and, and happy to take a connection from you, but happy to have a conversation. And it's always, it's never the hard sell. What are you trying to do? What's the opportunity here? And, and maybe we're not the right fit and that's okay. Again, I build my business on on great networks and, and most of the time it's, it's sending you to a better place. And, and that's, we're not a broker. We don't make money on that. But uh, I think good business and, and cooperative collaboration is, is the best way to go. Will, thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed hearing uh, your story. And uh, until next time on Dealmakers DNA. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on a Dealmakers DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.